Welcome to the podcast, Bringing Truth to Life, where we talk about what the scriptures say that can help you get unstuck from the thorny issues of life and encourage you to live the life you've been wanting to live with Christ. Our speaker today is Henry Clay. We are in a series called Best Friends Forever, looking at the principles that move you to a deeper level of oneness and joy with your spouse. May this be helpful to you, and may it also give you truth to share with those you seek to encourage. The title of my remarks today is Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. This is the first message in a series called BFF, Best Friends Forever, a little corny, according to some of my family members. But anyway, we're going to talk about marriage and what a, what a lofty but great thought that you could be best friends forever with your spouse. Wendy and I have been married now for 39 years, and uh, this is a challenging topic to speak on. In fact, I avoided it for a solid 20-something years, just not sure I had that much to say about it, and also not feeling like I was doing all that well at it. So nothing I say today is going to solve all your problems or make the difficult go away. Growth is always hard, but it's also always good. But it seems like it's a good thing to talk about, particularly since God has revealed to us things about who He is, how He is, what He does, how the things He has designed work, and what's our best way of participating with Him for His glory, our success, our joy, and our progress forward. Now, marriage is something that you've all been interested in, at least at some point in your life. But for many of you, now it's possibly a sore subject. Some of you uh, have experienced the deep pain of a divorce, something that you were never anticipating, not looking for, certainly not setting as a goal. It just kind of happened. And lots of things contributed to that, I'm sure, and there are probably a certain number of regrets and pain associated with that. So the subject of marriage could be very painful to you because of that. A second set of people that it might be a sore subject for is just those that wanted to get married and never have, and maybe are not sure they ever will. And so bringing up the subject maybe is not a, not a happy one, and it may elicit all kind of feelings of frustration uh, or even anger or just disappointment. So I want to, I am sensitive to that and, and aware of that. Others of you are just not in a very happy marriage. You've, you've given it your best shot. You're going to hang in there, but it's really just not been uh, at all what you had hoped for. And you're not sure what, what you're going to do about that. But it does seem as the years tick by, it's a growing sense of loss and frustration. And then there are others who are Living together, have never married for your own reasons. I'm not here to pass judgment on that at all. Uh, you're doing the best you can, I'm sure, and operating according to the wisdom and the opportunity you feel like you have. But nevertheless, it could be that some of the things about what the Bible says about marriage could be of interest to you and of help to you. And finally, there's some of you who are still hoping to get married, and so I'm trusting that these thoughts and reflections from Scripture can guide your thinking and mature your thoughts on, on it. And for those of you that are still happily married and are happily married but would like to grow some more, uh, maybe this will help you as well. So why don't, why don't we jump in? What we'll be looking at is not so much tips and tricks, but principles of God's design. I studied mechanical engineering, and it's based on understanding what are the principles about the way nature, creation, or the universe, however you want to look at it, how, how things work and how they don't work. 
Now, as Christians, we believe that there actually is a designer. It's not just a, a marvelously working accident, but it's something that somebody put thought into. And things, everything that's made has a design, and you, there are all kind of criteria that you, that even going into designing something like a chair, you want a chair to be strong enough so that it will stand the weight of somebody sitting in it. You want it to be comfortable enough that people can sit in it for a while and not be too uncomfortable. And yet they say that in some fast food restaurants, because they're their design criteria is they don't want you to be comfortable too long because they want to free up your seat for other people. They make it comfortable enough to eat fast food in about 20 minutes. But if you tried to sit there for an hour and a half, you'd be uncomfortable. They want you to eat it and beat it. So they're design criteria for everything that's made. And God had certain things in mind when he designed marriage. One of the things they said in engineering was you knew something was engineered well if it was built by some people who are very smart, so that even people that weren't so smart could be successful in running it. Uh, in fact, the actual phrase is, designed by geniuses to be run by idiots. But, I mean, that's, don't be offended by that, but I've heard, I've heard that one. Marriage is also a teaching tool. It's not just about marriage itself, but it's a teaching tool and a visual aid for a greater truth, a more permanent and truer love that lasts forever. The desires that you felt to be happily married aren't related only to being with someone that you have fallen in love with in a more committed relationship. It points to a deeper need and longing that you have for connection with Almighty God. And that's why the heaven is pictured as the wedding feast of the Lamb. In a sense, in heaven we will have a, a larger, more glorious marriage-type relationship with the divinity, with God himself, in terms of the depth of trust, relationship, joy, communication, purpose, and delight in teaming together. Now, keep in mind as well that we shouldn't over-idealize marriage or idolize it either, as though, well, if you don't end up getting married or it's not a happy marriage or something like that, that all is lost and your life had no purpose, etc. I'm sure you're not thinking that, but some have thought that. And I want to just remind you, at least from a Christian perspective, that it's very significant that Jesus never got married. Uh, if marriage really was everything, then you suppose he would have probably gotten married to model that. So for those of you in particular that are not married yet, or that you're single again due to divorce or death of a spouse, Remember, marriage is a reflection of a greater and more wonderful and more permanent truth that you can already be experiencing now. So don't let the enemy of our souls drive you into negative thinking or despair, but to open you up to greater possibilities that God can fill when that marriage square is not filled at this moment in your life. So before we go any further, I want to think with you for a minute about a couple of questions. I want to ponder with you, why did people used to get married? Say up to, I don't know, 100 years ago uh, in the history of the human race. Why, why, would people, why would people want to get married? But people used to get married because economically it was set up that way, that uh, women would bear children and it was a very labor-intensive to raise children. 
to educate them, to make the clothes, to wash the clothes in a tub, to go out and uh, food preparation took three or four times longer to carry out. And so the economic division of labor was that women would raise the family and that would provide also, that was their social security net. That's when you're you're old and infirm. The only ones that can take care of you are your children because there didn't used to be any national safety net, Social Security, Medicare, anything like that. So there were a lot of actual material benefits that affected why people get married. They'd also get married because that's the way you pass on your inheritance. So it was something that was expected by society and promoted by society. In the last 50 years or so, there has been a, an increasing shift away from those kind of motives since uh, m- many women now are able to get an education, do, have a great career, have a great income. So the economic piece is not quite the same. And as a result of that, it, it, there's a little bit more question about, well, do we even want to have children, etc.? It's an expense. It's going to be hard since we're both working. And maybe we do better just not having children, but we'll be together. We'll have a friendship and uh, we'll stay the course together. But I have a third question I'd like to ask you today, and that is, why should people get married? Now, again, if you're not that clear on your faith in Christ or God, and that's not been a part of your journey yet, forgive me, I, I will kind of speak to what's the Christian point of view on it, but you may be curious to know what it is. So my third question is, why should people get married? And the whole should question does sort of beg the thought that there is a higher person in the universe who has an opinion on how things go. When you talk talk about what should or what ought, you're actually appealing to eternal truths. So when a Christian thinks, well, why sh- what should be my motive in getting married? The true proper motivation for a Christian to get married is because they've discerned that that's God's will for their life and God's provided the person and and confirmed in their hearts that that's what what he wants. It was, for me, one of the clearest things God ever did in my life was when he led me to get married to Wendy. And that was very comforting and reassuring. I remember when I realized she liked me, and I'd already been praying, and actually it it had been a couple of months, and I already really, really liked her, but I thought, well, she's never going to like me, so... Uh, might as well not give it too much thought. And the day, I remember the day that I realized she liked me. And I thought, well, that's it. We're going to get married. Uh, So several days later, I told her I liked her. And uh, seven weeks later, we got engaged. And four months later, we got married. So it was a great adventure for me with God to try to discern His will. And, of course, very exciting. Sometimes you like His will more than other times, but... It was great. There was a song that came out a number of years ago that I found interesting and telling about our our current times. It's called Living Life Upside Down. I guess it came out in the 80s. You may have heard of it. Many of you have not. Let me just uh, read some of the verses here. It says, John has a new way of looking at life. He's tired of his job, his kids, and his wife. He says the secret to his success was in leaving and finding himself. Now he's someone to somebody else. And you say we've risen to a new age of truth. You're calling it 
a spiritual godly pursuit. But I say, what if we've fallen to the bottom of a well, thinking we've risen to the top of a mountain? What if we're knocking at the gates of hell, thinking we're heaven-bound? What if we spend our lives thinking of ourselves when we should have been thinking of each other? What if we reach up and touch the ground and find we're living life upside down? The world has gone kind of topsy-turvy on us, and sometimes we're a part of that confusion, aren't we? Well, let's jump in. I'd like to talk to you first about the mystery of marriage, the mystery of marriage. So if God and His will should be primary and central about our purpose, our reason for getting married, uh, we need to study what was His idea about marriage. What's, what were His design criteria? What was He shooting for? Genesis 1, 27 and 28 the very first book, very first chapter of the Bible says, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And what this sort of tells us is, is that we have God's DNA. It's like a wax impression of a signet ring. I used to have a a gold signet ring that was my father's. And it had a, a, a bit of a design in there. And I guess the idea was you would, when you're sealing a letter, you m- melt wax on the place where you do the flap down. And then you press the ring into it to leave your mark that shows that you're the one that sealed it. And it doesn't mean that the wax becomes goal like the ring, but it does bear the imprint of the ring. And that's how we are. We, we bear the imprint of God. It's, we're not God and, you know, we're like Him in qualities, but not in capacities. He's all, all present, all powerful, all knowing. We're none of those things. And yet we know what it's like to be present, to be uh, loving, kind. We may not be that, but we know what it is. And we know when we see it that it's good. And we know when we don't do it, it's not good. So we have been made to reflect God, to that when the universe looks at us, it should see some aspect of our Maker reflected in us. He wants us to reflect His glory. He told us He wants us to rule His creation. He wants us to do that together with each other and with Him. And marriage is sort of like He's created it almost like it was a puzzle. Some of you like puzzles. Some of you like Rubik's Cube or Jigsaw Puzzles. Uh, Some of you like riddles, figuring things out. And uh, I've often thought that marriage is like a puzzle that God has given us. And it takes your whole life puzzling with the puzzle, thinking, I wonder how this thing is supposed to work. I find very, very few families, uh, couples, over these last 50 years of being involved with, with marriages in different ways, I found very, very few that everything's always fine. In fact, I'd be hard-pressed to name even one. But I I hate to say there's nobody. It's certainly not us, though. Uh, We we still have some things, usually weekly, fortunately not necessarily daily, but we're still working on it. It reminds me of former President Gerald Ford when they asked him, how is your golf game going? And he says, I'm doing better. I'm not hitting as many spectators. So I guess I feel a lot like that sometimes in terms of my my marriage, even though it's been so wonderful and Wendy is fantastic, but we're still learning and growing.
And as you begin to understand the puzzle and figure out parts of it, it brings God great glory because he has a plural unity. See, God created man and woman in his own image, and he brought them together. Actually, he created man, and then he, if you believe the Bible account, he took a rib out when Adam was asleep, and he separated that out and formed woman, and he brought them back together. So you see that out of one, God made two to make them one again. And we believe that there, God exists in Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That they are one God and yet three persons. And in a sense, he's reflected that in the way he's made man and woman and the way he's made us to relate so that we can uh, demonstrate that character of his personhood, that he's both plural and yet he is one. And so when you're truly growing in oneness with your spouse, you're bringing God great glory, and it's something that Satan will fight against. He does not want you to be on the same page. He does not want you to be in harmony. Satan fights very hard to destroy marriages. And even if you don't believe in the devil, I know you have seen things that are very wrong, very evil, whether or not you personify it in the person of the devil. And... I believe that Satan wants each of you to go your own way and end up alone. And even if that's you end up staying married, as one person said, uh, same bed, different dreams. Someone else said, many marriages are little more than a maid and a butler who share closet space. So I wonder today where, if you are married, how is it going? What's your vision? What's your hope going forward in the future? Genesis 2.24 says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God is wanting us to cleave. That word cleave is an interesting one. Uh, God has made us to be sticky. Uh, His goal for us is oneness. And this word cleave is the same as in Psalm 63.8 which says, My soul clings to thee. That word clings or cleaves. In Hebrew, in case you're curious, it's shachar, and it's translated to fasten a grip on, hold fast, stick together. There's also kind of a dynamic use of it, to follow closely, pursue closely, overtake. It's used in chase scenes when one guy would be chasing another person. And what a great picture for marriage, too, the idea of, We're to cleave to one another, even if it hurts, and also we're to pursue one another. Uh, God made us to mirror his oneness. Now, I'd like to, you know, when we talk about this mystery of a marriage, there is one verse in the Bible where marriage is mentioned as being a covenant. A covenant. We're going to talk more about covenant in a little bit, but Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says, and this is another thing you do. Malachi, of course, the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Why is God not happy? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion, and she is your wife by covenant. 
She is your wife by covenant. What would God say about your marriage today? Are you dealing treacherously with the companion of your youth? Or are you faithfully keeping your covenant with your partner? So the next thing we want to look at is how a marriage begins. How does a marriage begin? So the second part is the why of a wedding. We looked at the mystery of a marriage, of taking two and making them one, of being created in the image of God to reflect God, of being bound together by that uh, covenant agreement. And then the second part, the why of a wedding. The why of a wedding. Think back, think back if you are married, if you've ever, uh, and even if you're not married, you, you've been to weddings. Think about what constitutes a wedding. What constitutes a wedding? There's, it's a ceremony and a celebration. But I want you to think about a minute. What's at the, what's at the center of a wedding? What makes a wedding a wedding? Is it the songs? Is it the people that are there? Is it because there's a minister there? Is it because everybody's so dressed up? Is it because there's a legal aspect to it? I began to perform more wedding ceremonies, so I got much more into the details of what what is it I'm going to say, because I'm the minister and everything. And... I began to discover something that almost all of the what goes on at a wedding is centered around just one point. It's kind of like a steak dinner. Uh, this, it's the steak that makes the dinner. Now, if you, I love steak dinners, and if you have a steak dinner, you don't want just a steak on the plate, right? You, uh, it's nice to have. Uh, mashed potatoes and fries, or fries, not both. <laughs> uh, maybe some vegetable. A salad is nice. Uh, some bit of bread, toast or a roll. Uh, it's also, you want to have something to drink. You might have an appetizer, and you might have a dessert. And yet, if you took away any of those other things, you would still have a steak dinner. But if you take away the steak, you do not have a steak dinner. So what's the stake in the wedding ceremony? It's the vows, it's the promises that are the center of gravity of the whole service. Now at the beginning they do something that sounds kind of like that, but it's not. Remember, the minister looks at the bride, well first the groom I think, and basically asks the groom, do you want to go through with this? And the groom says, yes, will you have this woman? Yes. And then he looks at the bride and he says, well, will you have this man? And she says, yes. Now, that's not actually the vow. That is the official go-ahead that both the bride and the groom still want to go through with this. So then later on in the ceremony, they have what is actually the vows, and instead of looking at the minister and answering, now they look at each other and they promise. They make a vow, a promise. The ring, of course, is just a symbol of the vow that they made. The songs is a celebration of that. The unity candle is an illustration of that. The solos also celebrates it. But the center of gravity of any wedding is the promises that are made. So let's think about the promise that's made. I have a sample one here, and it may... And obviously, they could have said this thing, these vows, they could have whispered it in each other's ears sitting outside the Chick-fil-A one night, 
There's nothing that means they can only say this in a church. But a sample vow is, will you have this woman to be your wedded wife, to live together according to God's command in the holy state of matrimony? Will you love her, comfort her, honor, and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep yourself only unto her so long as you both shall live? Will you? And, of course, the person is, if they want to, they're supposed to say, I do or I will. Why can't they just say that to each other when they're by themselves with a nice beverage and sitting in in a cozy place? Why is that not considered the same? Interesting, isn't it? What you're seeing here is the marriage is based on a promise And there are certain ways that you make a promise in a more serious way. So one of the ways you do that is you get a lot of witnesses to hear you make that statement. So the way weddings are engineered is you have have a representative of God Almighty. That's the pastor if you have a church wedding. Or at least you have a representative of the government if you just have a civil wedding. Then, on top of that, you invite both your closest family members and your closest friends. So many people have at least 100 people at their wedding, and they're all the most important people in their lives. And all of that is to underscore how serious you are about this. People would say, well, why, why do I need to do all of that? Why isn't it just enough that I love you and I can tell you that and we don't need all of this foolishness? Let's think for a minute about what is the purpose of a promise. A promise, have you ever wondered what what makes a promise a promise? What is it? A promise is a stated commitment to certain future behavior that lays the foundation for trust and relationship. Think about that. It's a stated commitment, so it's not like you just, I'm thinking something, but guess what I'm thinking? It's like, I know I'm going to say it. It's a state of commitment to certain future behavior. It's not related to the past. It's not even related to the present. It's what you can count on me to do or not do in the future. Why is that important? Well, that's the basis of your trust. The bank makes a promise to you that they're going to keep your money safe and they've got it insured and all these things. And all of that is to inspire trust. If you did not trust the bank, you would not put your money there. So they basically make a a promise that if you give us the money, we're going to take good care of it, we're going to pay you interest, and we'll give it back to you when you ask for it. All of those are promises. If they refuse to make the promises, you can give us your money, but we make no promises about ever giving you your money back or giving you any return on your investment. We're not going to make promises like that. Uh, We just want you to trust us. Would you trust them? No, if they won't even act like they're going to be trustworthy, why would you trust them? So the purpose of a wedding is to lay a solid foundation of mutually given promises and vows of future behavior of love and faithfulness. And on that, each other leans and puts their their trust in the other person to make them, because you make yourself very vulnerable when you get married. Yeah, physically, financially, uh, emotionally, it's a very vulnerable thing. And you don't want to do that with just anybody. You want to do that with someone that you feel like you can trust. And the making and keeping of promises is the basis 
of that trust. There are other kinds of promises like checks, joining a church, when you take out a mortgage, baptismal vows, swearing in court to tell the truth. Their promises is, is throughout all of our society because it is the basis of relationships. So think about it. If there are no promises, then there's no trust. If there's no trust, there's no really deep relationships. And if there are no relationships, you're just off on your own. So promises, the making and keeping of promises is one of the most important things about your life. And one of the things that will have a great effect on your success in many areas of life. So think about that wedding ring you've got on your finger. That reminder, I've got a silver one here, or maybe it's white gold. But it's a reminder. It's like a, you know, when people want to remember something temporary, they'll maybe they used to say they'll tie a string around my their finger. So this is sort of like the the permanent string tied around my finger. It's made of of metal that even after 39 years, it's still in great shape. To always remind me, Henry, you made a promise before God and before all the most important people in your life to act in a certain way toward your wife, toward Wendy. Uh, Fulfill your vow. Fulfill your promise. Psalm 15, verse 4 says, talking about the righteous, it says, In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. And the, the righteous, one of the characteristics of a righteous person is he swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, he makes promises, and even if then circumstances change and it's no longer as favorable for him or her, uh, they still keep their word. You gave your promise, you will fulfill your promise. So the third thing I'd like to look at, we looked at the mystery of a marriage. Then we looked at the why of a wedding. What's that purpose of having a, a wedding? It's, it's to give those vows. And then the third thing I want to look at is the concept of a covenant. We, you know, we've used different words, promises. You could use the word oaths, vows. But this word covenant is an interesting one. It's particularly a, a Bible sort of one. One Webster's Dictionary says a covenant is a usually formal, solemn, and binding agreement, a compact. In a sense, you bind yourself, you tie yourself with your words. That's why a lot of people don't want to have a wedding. They don't want to get married in that way because they feel like it binds them. And it does bind you, but in the best sense, because it's only with that willingness to make that level of a commitment that the strength and depth of a relationship is made possible. A covenant is a bond, a tie, a link, a contract. In the Bible, the word covenant appears for the first time in Genesis, and it's used all the way through Scripture, including in the book of Revelation. In Genesis 6, God makes the covenant with Noah, putting the rainbow in the sky. It was the, there was the sign of the covenant was the rainbow. It was God's agreement that he would never again send a flood on the earth. And in Genesis 15, there's an interesting passage. You might want to read it sometime. But God is making a covenant with Abraham, or Abram at the time, I think it was. And he puts Abram in a deep sleep. 
and he's he's made this sacrifice. So he's he's cut these animals and he's put them, cut them in half and placed them over on the sides. And in his vision, he sees a flaming torch, which is a kind of a picture of God passing between the pieces of the sacrifice. You think that? Uh, I'm not sure what that's all about. Well, when they would make a covenant in the Old Testament, one of the ways they would say they mean business, that they're really serious about this. I mean, we've, you've heard things like this, actually, in kids' stories and stuff like that. You know, um, cross my heart and hope to die, uh, stick a needle in my eye. But the, the point is, may terrible things happen to me if I don't keep my promise. Cross my heart and hope to die. It's basically like if I, if I go back on what I've said, I, I hope uh, it kills me. And that's just a way of underlining of saying how, how serious you are about keeping this agreement. So in the Old Testament, they would take an animal, if it was a very serious covenant they're making, take an animal, a goat or a donkey or a lamb, kill it, cut it in half, and place the two pieces with some distance. And then they, they, the two people making the agreement would walk between the pieces. And what they're saying is, if I go back on my promise, may the same thing happen to me that happened to these animals, that they were killed and dismembered. So it's like, wow, okay, yeah, you must be serious if you really think that might happen, if you don't uh, keep your promise. But the interesting thing with this picture of God with Abram is that in Abram's vision, they don't, both parties don't walk between the pieces of the animal. Just God does. You see, a covenant can be unilateral or it can be bilateral. Unilateral, one-sided, bilateral, two-sided. A two-sided covenant, a bilateral covenant is, if you do this, I will do that. Almost all business transactions are that way. You give me the product, I will give you the money. If I don't give you the money, you won't give me the product, and uh, I won't. Uh, I won't give you the money if you won't give me the product. So, a bilateral covenant is each party has to fulfill their part. A unilateral covenant is where a promise is made that's not dependent on the response of the other person. So, I want you to go back with me. Let's let's look back again at that at that covenant vow that you made in your wedding. So I want you to listen to this covenant that's the, uh, the wedding vow, and I want you to listen for, is it a bilateral covenant or a unilateral covenant, the way it's worded? So let me read it again. Again, you're looking for, are there any if things? I'll do this if you do that. Will you have this woman to be your wedded wife? to live together according to God's command in the holy estate of matrimony. Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep yourself only unto her, so long as you both shall live? Will you? Unilateral or bilateral? It's unilateral, isn't it? There was no if in there. As long as she does all those things, I'll do my part. No. The strength of the wedding covenant is that it's a unilateral covenant before God that you're going to act in a certain way. It's your stated commitment to certain future behavior, no matter what. Now, I realize in actuality, it often for many people hasn't worked out that way. But isn't it interesting that the design of marriage and the design of a wedding is that both parties make a unilateral covenant 
that's not based on the good behavior of the other person. There are no ifs in any of those vows. Now, you could ask, well, maybe it's, uh, yeah, you, you, you make these covenants, and I mean, you make these promises, and you mean well, but things don't always work out, and that's true. But it's very important to realize in the Bible that it was extremely serious not to break a covenant. And I won't go into it, but there's a, quite a story in, in Joshua and then Second Samuel about how seriously God takes a covenant. Now, the fact is we're by nature selfish, and by nature we're faithful only to ourselves. I think it was some actress in Hollywood that says, the only affair you ever really have is with yourself. And as honest as that is, it's also in some ways has some aspects of truth in the normal human being. We want to seek pleasure and avoid pain. In fact, for every single person on the earth, the seeds of our future divorce is already in us. Because we've got things in us that make it very difficult for us to live in an intimate, giving relationship, committed relationship with another person. In a sense, your yard already has weeds. It could be that your yard looks beautiful and everything looks fine, and yet there are already weeds in that garden. You have to keep mowing the lawn and pulling the weeds. So we need to get busy um, uh, about what, how we're viewing our marriage. The fact is, we can get involved in so many things and over time begin to take for granted our, our spouse, take for granted our marriage. I was always touched by a friend of mine who's now with the Lord, but he said in his first marriage, he thought things were going okay, and one day his wife walked in, and she says, well, I'm, I'm leaving. He says, oh, where are you going? She says, no, I'm leaving. And she walked out. She divorced him, and it totally broadsided him. He had no idea that that was coming. The fact is a divorce is always preceded by thousands of micro-divorces where bit by bit you back off of your commitment to your marriage. And that's something to really give some thought to, not just avoiding the big capital D divorce word, but what are the small ways where you begin to step away from your marriage vows to love, honor, and cherish, to respect uh, till death do you part? Have you become little more than a maid and a butler that share closet space? How many thousands of micro-divorces are you allowing, justifying it with the bad behavior of the other person, but realizing deep in your heart you can't really justify it that way? You don't like what they've done or what they've failed to do, but using that as an excuse for your own bad behavior and your own micro-divorce in your heart surely is not the way to go. But our new and best hope is that the covenant-keeping God now lives in us. That God is, has made all these promises, you think, on the one hand. I mean, why would he do that? We, do, we make covenants because we get something out of it. Uh, I, of course, wanted to marry Wendy and make a covenant because I got Wendy. <laughs> so it's like, well, well, yeah. But why would God make promises? That's something maybe to puzzle more about. But what we do know is, is that God has made many promises, even like promises of answered prayer. John 3.16 is a promise. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, John, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise from God. Call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things. Jeremiah 33, 3. These are promises that God has made. And something we can always say about God, that he can't go back on his word. He will always do everything he has said. Now, maybe he doesn't, he hasn't promised when he'd do it, so he doesn't always do it in the time frame we'd like or the way we'd like. But he is faithful. He is a faithful God. And if you're a Christian, that faithful God lives in you, that powerful, faithful God who lays down his life for the good of others lives in you. And that's a huge advantage for the Christian in order to be able to hang in there through the tougher parts of their marriage relationship. So what kind of commitment to your mate would you have to have to adequately reflect God's faithfulness to us? He wants you to be like him, to not just love the lovely, but to love and sacrifice for the unlovely, for the sinner. God, Jesus said, I came into the world to save sinners. And so there are times when you're, maybe you are a little bit more in the right in your marriage. Maybe your partner is, is a little bit more in the wrong, off the reservation. But this God lives in you that is merciful and kind and committed to laboring and suffering on behalf of those that don't really deserve it. So if you're going to hate murder, going back to that idea of micro-divorce, let's think of other sins. Uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, if you're, you know, of course, it's wrong to kill people, but that it's, he says it's when you are even angry with your brother or sister, it's, it's, a, it's a form of murder. It's micro murder. Uh, if you're going to hate murder, you need to hate unrighteous anger. Uh, that's murder in the bud. And if you're going to hate divorce, then you need to hate all micro divorce where you have decided at that moment that you're not willing to be loving and faithful as you promised. Because why? They don't deserve it. What are the characteristics of a bad, one-sided marriage? What are the characteristics of a bad, one-sided marriage? Arguing, not submitting, bad communication, no time spent together, no intimacy. I know some couples that have not had sexual intimacy in years. Unfaithfulness, complaining, bitterness, not caring how the other feels, disappointment, grief, tears, blaming each other. The fact is, this also is a picture, some many times, of how your relationship has been with God. So yes, your spouse has let you down, they haven't done what, and you have a lot, you actually could do quite a list of things that you do not like about your spouse. Could not God say the same about you? He has been a perfect spouse to you, and you have not lived up to the level that he has performed at. And yet he keeps, he keeps loving you anyway. And so when, when you're loving your spouse, even when, with their many, many shortcomings, you're reflecting how God has been with you 
uh, to your spouse and to your if you if you have children. Your I'm not saying if you're in a truly abusive relationship, you should not address that. Please don't hear me uh, in an extreme way. But 95 percent of the time, it's not those extreme cases. It's but it's still not something that we're happy with, and we would like it to be different. So how about you today? How strong is your commitment to your original vow before God and your family and friends? Have you dealt treacherously with the companion of your youth? Have you been allowing all kinds of micro-divorce, blaming it and justifying it on your spouse, even though you made a unilateral covenant to act faithfully? Are you willing to renew your commitment to your partner to hang in there no matter what until death do you part? Let me close with this little quote here that by Thornton Wilder. This is from something he wrote called The Skin of Our Teeth. He says, I didn't marry you because you were perfect. I didn't even marry you because I loved you. I married you because you gave me a promise. That promise made up for your faults. And the promise I gave you made up for mine. Two imperfect people got married, and it was the promise that made the marriage And when our children were growing up, it wasn't a house that protected them. And it wasn't our love that protected them. It was that promise. Marriage is not based on love. It's based on a covenant, a promise of certain future behavior that lays the foundation for trust and deep relationship. For almost everyone, it's painful and puzzling at times very difficult and even agonizing. But as we humble ourselves and love unconditionally and serve sacrificially and forgive deeply, God is able to bless us and move us forward. May God help me and Wendy. May God help you and your spouse if you're married right now, or your future spouse if you will be married sometime. But... To live by vows, blessed be the tie that binds. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Word of God that's living and active. Thank you for making us according to your image. And I pray that we would really grasp this concept of promises and covenant and make the most of the strength of that in our marriage relationship so that that would hold us together even as we work out these difficult things that seem so impossible, but trusting in you, Lord, to give us fresh breakthroughs and new depth and new joy. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If the message has encouraged you, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next podcast of Bringing Truth to Life.